text for God's preached word tonight will be from Micah chapter 7. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil that is in his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no trust, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats his father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire in the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria, from the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. They shall be in the fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Before I pray, let me just express to all of us here and to those of you at the uh, south site, and the North Campus 
A word of thanks for the last five weeks for supporting me in this effort to write and uh, didn't get everything done that I dreamed about doing, but enough that I think it was probably worthwhile. So thank you all for praying and supporting me in the efforts that I made. Um, I think the Lord wants to do something really unusual for some of you tonight. I have a couple of reasons for thinking that besides the fact that it's God's Word that we will open. Um, about two hours ago, I added a, a sentence to the manuscript, which you'll hear, and uh, felt inclined to walk over to my shelf and just randomly pick a book off. It happened to be a book on repentance by John Culkin, who preached in Scotland uh, in, the, in the 18th century, and uh, randomly opened it. And the first sentence that I read was almost verbatim what I had added to my sermon. Little things like that kind of make you think, hmm, God might have something for somebody tonight. And the other one, about 10 minutes later, I got a phone call from David Livingston in Midway Airport in Chicago, uh, who's on his way home, and he just wanted to pray with me before I preach. And he uh, said that on the airplane, his wife handed him a book about mothering, and uh, it has a chapter in it. It happened to be written by the wife of a seminary classmate of his, and she has five children, three of whom have broken their hearts, one of them having spent most of his adult life in jail, and um, two of them following the Lord. And if that three and two doesn't strike you now, it will later, because that was just read to you and... um, God just wants to do something tonight, so let's pray. So, Father in heaven, I I take these little evidences of your kindness as a encouragement to me that it's not just routine here, that you have special purposes for some, and they will find out who they are. So I ask that I would be in tune with your spirit and faithful to your word and humble enough to submit to it and clear enough to make it understood and that you would do the great saving work, sanctifying work, humbling work, hope-giving work, especially for parents, but also for everyone. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we're concluding the series on spiritual parenting. Uh, in this message and the title that I have chosen that you see there in the worship folder is Parenting with Hope in the Worst of Times. There are no times that are easy for bearing children or bringing them up. None. The point of Genesis 3 is that as soon as sin came into the world, childbearing and child-rearing became very difficult. The Lord said to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then after she 
and Adam had raised their two sons, one of them killed the other. Now, the point of this story in Genesis 3 is that sin is in the world. Sin is in every parent. Sin is in every child. And this is the sort of thing that sin does. It ruins people. It ruins families. The main problem in the world is the power of indwelling sin. It's not politics, it's not personality, it's, it's not calamities. The main problem in the world is the power of indwelling sin. And mark me, it's a power. It is not a series of free choices. It is a bondage that prevents free choices. The one freedom-destroying thing in the world is sin, and we're all enslaved to it until a mighty power called the Holy Spirit liberates us. There's no talk about, I just do sin. They come from somewhere. Sin is a power. It is, an, is a reality in the human soul that destroys people and destroys families. The only way for a human to be free is to be born again by the Spirit of God. Embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. Be forgiven by the creator of the universe and receive the power of the Holy Spirit as the counterpower to sin by which we make a little bit of progress in this life against that amazing power. It's the only hope for the world. It's the only hope for parents. It's the only hope for children. That's always true. It's always been true since the fall. It will be true until Jesus comes. There are no easy times for parenting. There are no easy times for growing up. Bearing and raising children into, raising them into humble, loving, righteous, creative, productive, Christ-exalting adults is hard, indeed impossible. There are no easy times. But sometimes they're harder than other times. And whether your times are a hard time depends in part on the family and in part on the culture. Circumstances and what's going on inside. So anybody in this room right now might be having a relatively easier time and others of you an unbelievably hard time. We're all living in the same world. Because there are more factors going on than just the world. There's sin in us and sin in our kids and sin in the wider community and sin in the church. <coughs> and so... I don't know whether you're in one of those harder times, but none of you is in an easy time. If you think it's easy, you're dreaming. Or wait a few days. Now, my desire in this message is uh, to help you parent with hope in the worst of times. That's the title. Parenting with hope 
in the worst of times. Um, I mean the worst at home and the worst in culture, or both, or one. For those of you who are not parents, and I know that in different services there are more parents than others, Saturday night, fewer. Everything I say is relevant for non-parents and non-married people because everybody solves the hope problem in the same way, or not. So nobody check out. That's what David Michael said in the sermon five weeks ago at the beginning of the series, which I listened to, and that's what I'm saying now in this last message. We all need hope, but we need it for different reasons at different times. Hope you have your Bible open to Micah, if you can't find it. Uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Just struggle around till you find it. The minor prophets are the hardest books in the Bible to find, even for me after 64 years. The Jewish prophet Micah preached during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, according to verse 1 of the book. That means from 750 to 687, roughly, B.C. The clearest statement of what he's up to, why he's brought on the scene, is in chapter 3, verse 8. It goes like this. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. God sent prophets to Israel to declare their sins to them. And with their sin to proclaim judgment and mercy. That's the Bible. <laughs> sin, judgment, mercy. Sin, judgment, mercy. It's just the lub-dub of the Bible. Judgment, mercy, all the way through. Judgment on those who sin. Mercy on those who sin. Now, Micah makes this really clear, judgment and mercy, in chapter 4, verse 10. This is an amazing verse. Just trying to give you the big picture here of what he's up to. Chapter 4, verse 10, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion. <clears throat> That's Israel. Like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, and you shall go to Babylon. That's called judgment. Now watch the change. There you shall be rescued. There, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Over and over again, judgment, mercy, judgment, mercy. They're all woven together through the prophets. The Lord's going to send them judgment to Babylon, and he's going to go get them. And he didn't go get them because they suddenly became sweet. He'd go... Get him because he keeps his covenant with his people. Chapter 7, where we're going to spend all of our time. Micah refers to parenting 
in the worst of times, worst at home, and worst in culture. Start at verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no ripe fig that my soul desires. He may be talking about being destitute for food, literally. He also, I suspect, may be talking metaphorically about being destitute of something else mentioned in verse 2, namely godly friends and associates. Verse 2, the godly has perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. And each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. And thus they weave it together. So the leaders are corrupt. They conspire. They weave it together to do all the evil they can, and they're going to do it well. They become really good at it. (laughs) Never quite good enough. They wind up going to jail after a few Ponzi scheme years, and in the end, everybody will find out everything you've ever done. You can't do it well enough. Verse 4, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. In other words, if I, if I try to get near to them, I get stuck. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. The watchman is appointed to see the enemy coming and then do something about it. And so Micah says, his day's here. He's coming. The watchman's day is coming. Judgment is at hand. Verse 5. Put no trust in a neighbor. Now he's bringing it home from the big global or social, cultural, national picture. Bring it home down the street and then right into the bedroom. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. In other words, sin and corruption and deceit are so pervasive out there and in here that he can't trust his wife anymore. I said to Noel an hour ago, I said, now I'm going to come to a point in the sermon where I read this and it's going to feel really tense at that moment. And I want you to know, I have never, ever distrusted you. But some of you have. It's the worst of times for some of you. You don't know if he's true. You don't know if she's true. It just niggles. Are her words like butter? Or are they real? 
Some of you are there. Others are in different places. Verse 6, For the Son treats the Father with contempt. Now we're with the kids, right? Three and two. For the Son treats the Father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies are the men of his own house. So there are five people here. You see them? There's a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, and a daughter-in-law. So evidently the son is married. There's five people. Now he's already said there's problems with the wife. The one who lies in my arms, I can't, I have to guard the door of my mouth. I know what she's going to do with what I say. I, I don't know if she goes out and talks to people about what I say. I, I don't know. I can't know if I can trust her with my heart anymore. And now we've got the kids. A son is rising up against his father. The daughter is rising up against her mother. The daughter-in-law is siding with the daughter and going against mom. And Micah calls them the enemies of his household. A man's enemies are the... He does say men of his house. It's interesting. It is a male term. And I suspect that means because he said the son's rising up against dad and the daughters are going after mom. But a dad feels it when the daughter goes after mom. Now this is heartbreaking Some of you live in this situation. You've lived in it for 30 or 40 years. I was talking to a guy the other day. His dad hasn't talked to him for 20 years. It goes both ways. The culture is corrupt. The marriage is broken. At least inner marriage is broken. The family's in crisis. And that's the picture of Micah 7 so far. And that's the picture for many of you today. And for some of you, tomorrow. So I hope you're getting ready. Okay? You're not there yet. You're not even married yet. So remember this sermon, how to, how to parent with hope in the worst of times, like 30 years from now. 40? Thought it was good and it wasn't. Before I show you how this prophet helps us parent with hope in this mess, would you go with me to Jesus? Because Jesus quoted verse 6, and some of you know that, and I want you to see what he did with it. Okay? Matthew 10, verses 34 to 36. You know, these books don't just dangle back there. Jesus knew his Bible. (laughs) He really knew his Bible. What do you think he was doing for 30 years before he came on the scene? That's a long seminary. Which means you don't need to hurry, by the way. Take as much time as you need to know the Word. 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus describes the effect of his coming like this. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then he quotes Micah 7, or he uses it. 7, 6. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That's a quotation, all right? So we're all there. That's verse 6 of Micah 7. So we got the same five people. You got a reference to them as enemies, all of them this time, not just the men. But one huge difference. Jesus says he's the reason it's happening. You see that? Verse 35. I have come to set a man against his father. Now, he doesn't mean, of course, that he loves to break up families. I just love it when families are broken. We know that's not what our Lord Jesus means from everything else he says. Well, what does he mean? He means when I call people, a church, to radical discipleship, come, mom, dad, son, daughter, come, follow me. Deny yourself. Sell everything, buy the treasure, be mine. Some do, and some don't. And it really causes disruptions in families. Oh, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes now. You're too good for the rest of us. We're the ones who've got to get fixed now, right? You can't win. No matter how humble you say it. He doesn't, that's not God's aim. He wants, come on, everybody, come on in. I've got salvation, I've got forgiveness, I've got hope, I've got a meaningful life. I don't want you to split up over this. But he knows that's what happens, and so he knows he's come to call people, and so he says, I've come to do that. Now, why, why am I going over here to bring Jesus in when we're working on Parenting with Hope in Micah 7. Two reasons. Number one, the breakdown in the family in Micah, in Micah's day, is not necessarily owing only to corruption. It may be owing to righteousness mingled with corruption. See what I'm saying? This split between the three and the two, and the dad and the son, the mom and the daughter, and the daughter-in-law, this mess might be because one of them suddenly was awakened by the Spirit to take the covenant seriously and to love their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and start reading the Torah and be transformed by the inside out because the new covenant was already being written on their heart by the Spirit, trusting in the Redeemer yet to come, and it just splits the family because righteousness entered into the mess. That might be happening. I just want you to know that there are good reasons for families breaking down sometimes. It was just going so smooth. It was just going so smooth until you got religion. 
Here's the second reason. First one was to see that the origin of the mess might not just be owing to badness, but some goodness. Number two, I want you to see that the worst time is always. In other words, here's Micah. This is uh, 8th century, crossing over into the 7th century B.C., and Jesus picks it up in the 1st century, quotes it like, yes, now too, and now here we are in the 21st century, and I'm saying yes, here too, because this description in verse 6 of Micah 7 is just the way it is from time to time, always. From family to family, the worst of times. So what does Micah have to say about parenting with hope in this situation? That's what we want to see. Starting in verse 7, he describes himself, and I think as he uses the first person here, he's talking about himself. I think he's speaking for the, for the representative dad and the representative Israelite. Not, he doesn't want you to just think, oh, here's a little story about Micah. It has nothing to do with me or Israel or my family or the wider national situation. It, it does, because as a prophet, often a prophet will speak about his situation so that we all see ourselves, see Israel in it. And I think you should see yourself in this. And So hear him as the father and hear him as the ideal Israelite that God would raise up as a penitent sinner. And the posture now, and here's my main point. I'll give it to you now, and then we'll just come back to it again and again. The posture he takes in order to do parenting in hope in the worst of times, the posture he takes is one of brokenhearted boldness. So that's the phrase we're going to use. And that's my answer to the question. If you, if you want to know, sum it up in a sentence for us what your point is tonight about parenting with hope. How do I do that? I would say the main message of Micah concerning how to parent in this mess is assume a heart posture of brokenhearted boldness. So the question we're going to ask is, what's he brokenhearted about? And it may not be what you think it is. And secondly, how can he be so bold in this mess? Especially when he's mess. He's a mess. Verse 6. Just said, a man's enemies are those of his own house. And now Micah says, but... As for me, verse 7, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So, in the worst of times, we look to the Lord. You may have tried to look elsewhere. I read all the marriage books. And now I don't know if I can talk to her and trust her. And I don't know what went wrong. Where are you going to look? You went to all the seminars. I don't, I don't know what happened. I can't even begin to figure this out. Where are you going to look? I'll tell you where to look. There's only one place to look. 
You look to the Lord. You look at your kids and you see them making a mess of their life. I, I, didn't I do it right? I thought I did it right. I, I thought I did as good as I could do it. Where are you going to look? Where are you going to look now? In the mirror? <laughs> you're going to look to the Lord. That's where you're going to look. But be careful here. Is Micah looking to the Lord in self-righteousness? That's really possible. Did you know that was possible? To look to the Lord in self-righteousness? In other words, I'm going to say to the Lord, I did it right. All a dad should do, I did, Lord. If this family's not working, I'm brokenhearted, but it's not my problem. It's their problem. Is that the posture of this man? Verse 7. It is emphatically not his posture. So let's keep reading. I don't want it to be your posture either. I don't want it to be my posture. Only the Holy Spirit can keep it from being our posture. Verse 8. Look for boldness and brokenness as I read. Verse 8 and 9. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. Now, who's he talking about there? Wife, daughter, son, Babylon, everything. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. That's amazing. Don't miss the beginning of verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Now, the reason that is so important to see here, this is not just a generic confession. They're all over the Bible, right? Why is this so relevant to feel here, to see here? And the reason is because in verse 8, he tells us he knows good and well that he is being sinned against. Don't gloat over me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. In the middle of verse 9, the Lord will plead my cause and execute judgment for me, not against me. He will bring me out to the light. I'll look upon his vindication. That feels good, doesn't it? We're going to get, I'm going to get vindicated. That wasn't his posture. 
What makes verse 9 at the beginning so stunning, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned, is because he says it in the vortex of being sinned against. You know this is one of the hardest things in the world, don't you? Friends, family, work. Uh, It is impossible without the Holy Spirit. So he knows he's being sinned against. He knows some of the accusations against him are wrong. He is going to be vindicated in something And he knows that God is for him and not against him. God will bring him out into the light, out of darkness. He will vindicate him. So he's bold in his confidence in this assertion. Amazingly bold. Nevertheless, nevertheless, what he draws attention to, to explain the Lord's indignation, is his own sin. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. So, my answer to the question, why is he brokenhearted? I'm arguing that the posture for parenting with hope in the worst of times is a brokenhearted boldness. And I'm asking first, why is he brokenhearted? And the center of the answer, the core of the answer, is not their sin against him, but his sin against God. That's the core of his answer. And that's the core of parenting. It's the core of parenting. If it doesn't happen, nothing else is going to go right. Nothing. Wives and husbands, here it begins. Or here it starts over. The posture of parenting with hope in the worst of times, is the posture of broken-hearted, broken-hearted boldness. And the broken-heartedness is first centrally because of his own sin. That is a great battle that we face. And we can only find it by God's grace. I pray for you, God, grant that all of us would be given the miracle by the Holy Spirit of the kind of humility that in the midst of being sinned against, mainly emotionally owns our sin against God. Miracle. Healing miracle. The kind of thing that could give hope where you thought there was none. None. You know, parenthesis, this came to me just about an hour and a half ago. It's not in the manuscript. When you stand before God on the judgment day to give an account, guess what? He will not give you one minute to itemize the sins against you. Not one. For several reasons. Number one, he has a book. He doesn't need your help. Number two, you'd get it wrong. Your memory's not good enough. Number three, you'd use it for self-justification. 
You don't get one minute at the last day to talk about anybody else's sin. None. It's just your own. Close that parenthesis. Second question. How can he be so bold? I mean, do you get real bold when you just feel devastated by your sin and failure? Do you get, get walk out of that moment bold as a lion? No. So what is going on? How, how, how can this be? How can this paradox be of my finally being able to be real with me and my failures and suddenly get really bold? How can that be? Let's read. Um, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. Verse 8. When I fall, I will rise. I'm calling that boldness. Verse 9. God will execute, middle of the verse, God will execute judgment for me. He will bring me out in the light. I shall look upon his vindication. That's boldness talking. Amazing boldness. Now, where does it come from? Christianity, the Christian life is so strange. It's so strange. It is so counterintuitive. It is so unlike any way you're going to get counseling anywhere except from Micah and all the other books in the Bible. The answer is found in verses 18 and 19. And I, I go to verses 18 and 19 because it is not only the immediate answer, but it's the end of the book and it's the greatest theme of the Bible. And it ends the book because it is the greatest theme in the Bible and because it, it, it explains everything else in judgment and mercy in the book and in the Bible. Oh, it is big. It is so deep. It is so central and, in a sense, so simple. So let's read these amazing verses. And if you wonder, where did that strange hymn come from that we sang? Who is a pardoning God like thee? And who has grace so rich and free? And who has grace so rich and free? I asked him to sing that song. That's where it came from. And we're going to close the service with it. And I don't know whether you are north and south, but we are here. Because now you know it. That's a quote from Micah 7, 18. So here we read it. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Do you believe that? delights. I know some of you think he only delights in spanking his children. That's not the case. Hear the word of God. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities. In other words, I got enemies. Guess where they are? Here. What's he going to do with them? Tread them down, not me. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now that is an amazing set of propositions. The reason Micah is so bold is that in his brokenness for his own sin, he knows this God. Do you? 
look at the phrase, who is a God like you? Why does he begin with that phrase? Who is a God like you? What does that mean? It means there isn't another one like this. Meaning, this is unusual for a God to be like this. If there were a lot of gods, and there are a lot of pretended gods, this is the only one like this. Allah is not like this. Hindu gods are not like this. A God who is not the father of Jesus is not like this. There is one God like this who is a God like this. Our God, the father of Jesus, the covenant God of Israel who sent Jesus as his Messiah into the world. He's like this and nobody else is like this. This is why Isaiah said, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts because you will have compassion on us and make us return to you. That's the context. You think God is mainly designed by, defined by wrath or mainly defined by justice? Who is a God like this? Namely, a pardoning God. A pardoning God. So, how do you parent in the worst of times with hope? How do you parent with hope when the family is divided three to two. Two to three. You look to the Lord. You cry to the Lord, verse 7. And then you cry to Him with two deep, spirit-wrought, word-informed convictions. Are you getting there? Only God can get you there. Preaching helps, but only God can get you there. I'm trying to build into your life right now as parents or to be parents or ever single people. I'm trying to build two, two deep convictions, governing convictions, emotionally effective convictions, two of them, brokenhearted boldness. A conviction, my sin is my biggest problem. My sin is our marriage problem. My sin is my parenting problem. My sin is my work problem. My sin is the church's problem. And I don't deserve anything from God. We are not and never will be perfect parents. We have sin. Call it anything you want to soften it. We're not foolish. We're not naive. We know we've been sinned against. Wives sinned against us. Children sinned against us. Pastors sin against us. We know that. That's just not the core of our issue. God will not call me to account for anybody's sin against me. None. He will call me to account for one thing. How have I responded? Have I been a sinner? And I have. Only the Holy Spirit can make us feel this guilt as we should deep down. So that's the first conviction. I'm, I'm pr- praying that God would work in our hearts. Number two, there is no God like our God. I want you to be so deeply convinced that he pardons iniquity. He passes over transgression. He relents from anger. He delights in steadfast love. I want you to be just as deeply convinced of that as that you are a sinner. Do you see how these work together? This is so important. Get the next 60 seconds. 
deep, deep sense of conviction for my own sin in the midst of being sinned against. I'm emotionally governed here by my own failures and I'm being humbled by that. That's a, that's a miracle. And over here is a massive, strong, unshakable conviction. This God that rules the world pardons iniquity. Those two. Do you see how they work together? This one causes me to be more amazed at the pardon. But unless I'm confident in the pardon, I'm going to lie to myself. I am. I'm going to short-circuit this conviction. I will not let it go to the bottom. I can't because it's devastating. It's just too devastating unless I got this fixed. Got that? You got how they work together? It won't work. You can't have a God you're super excited about because of his pardon if you don't go here. And you can't go here unless you've got a God who's super excited, who's, who's super exciting in his, in his pardon. And if you say, that's, that's a, that's a, that won't work. I'm saying it's a miracle. It's a miracle. I can't explain the Christian life. I can't explain the new birth. I can't explain conviction of sin. I can't explain how God shows up and does two things that depend on each other at the same time. He does. Most of you have tasted it. You have. You, you need to go deeper, but almost all of you in this room, I would guess, have tasted what I'm talking about. So those two deep convictions, brokenhearted boldness, are what I mean by parenting with hope in the worst of times. We assume a posture in the vortex of being sinned against, and we don't even know, is it mainly me or mainly them? I can't ever figure this out, right? We don't even know. And in that vortex, we own what we know. I'm a sinner, and he's a great Savior. So how do you close? You close by saying, okay, we're Christians And we know now that from this side of the cross, if I look at that, where God bought my pardon, both of these are intensified. Aren't they? Not lessened. Intensified. You don't really know how grievous your sin is until you watch Jesus die for it. You don't. You can't. You you just can't know how bad it is. You can't feel how bad it is. The whole point of how gory the cross is, is how gory my sin is. That's the whole point. You just can't know. Therefore, Christians have an edge on guilt. We're, We're better at it. Hopefully. We should be the guiltiest people on the planet. We should be more devastated than anybody. We've seen the glory of the cross and the confidence level of our hearts that he passes over. This horror should rise with every scream from his mouth on the cross. So on this side of the cross... What changes is now we see the price that was paid. It intensifies how wretched I am and it intensifies how utterly committed our covenant God is to pay for it and draw us into his family in spite of it. It's just incredible. And you know, for Micah, Jesus was just a a prophecy. You remember it? I'll read it to you. 
chapter 5, verse 1 or 2. But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth one for me who is to be ruler in Israel. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. That shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. And now we see in that the greatest clarity of our sin and God's commitment to rescue us from it. Christ took our judgment. So, if you are parenting in the worst of times, and many of you are, and many of you will be, I want you to get ready. Be ready. I want those of you who are not parents, were parents, lost children, will never have children, I want you to have this hope as well. And you have it by being broken and being bold. So, embrace this. Just say to yourself, I am going there. I'm going there. I'm going to live there. I'm not going to run from this anymore. I'm going to own this, both. Go down deep here. I'm going to rise here. So God, Holy Spirit, do this miracle for parents and marriages and, and everybody. Let's pray. Father, while this world lasts, we are in hard times. Some are easier, some are harder. And I'm praying especially now for those who who walked in here in the hardest of times, marital hardness and children heartbreak. And I just want you to meet them in unusual power with hope. And I pray that their own sin would not be crushing, but a pathway to the cross. And there they would become lion-hearted in hope. It may take a long time before they walk out into the light. Give them patience. I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.